0: In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, theologian Kent Hughes cites the task of preaching as the following. See if you find this to be true as well. The task of the preacher, this supposedly is my job description, the task of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted And to afflict the comforted. Comfortable, excuse me. Let me say it again. The job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Think about that. Any pastor worth his salt will seek to bring a biblical balance to the preaching of God's word. Because that is precisely what God's Word does. God's Word comforts the afflicted. And it afflicts the comfortable. It reminds us in truth of what we experience and what we what we can anticipate when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And it also pulls no punches in declaring to us what we will experience if we refuse Christ, the reality of eternal destruction. And so this morning, as we consider the book of Hebrews, actually, it's remarkable how the author of the book of Hebrews, perhaps a pastor himself, um, does that very same thing, so we 're a couple weeks into our series, and I just want to highlight your attention to how he 's done that he 's done both he has brought comfort to the afflicted um, and he 's afflicted the comfortable. We saw that in chapter one chapter one, what was chapter one about? Chapter one was about him saying to these people who are considering abandoning christ he said no don't don 't even think about abandoning Christ, remember who Christ is. He is the exalted one over all. He is superior to all things, including the angels. He is the one who sat down at the right hand of God. God seeing his sacrifice as acceptable for all, the once and for all sacrifice. He is the one worthy of worship. He's the one you don't want to leave. Don't leave Christ. And he he does that by exalting Christ. And then in chapter 2, as we saw last week, just four short little parenthetical verses, he says, oh, we got to pay much closer attention. So the warning comes. He's afflicting the comfortable. They were They were considering leaving Christ. And he says, no, 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 we must pay much closer attention to this gospel that we've heard. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The warning he brings is real. Like it, it, it matters how we walk in this life. So he's, he's comforting the afflicted, then he afflicts the comfortable. And now this morning, as we'll read the rest of chapter two, I think what we'll see is that through a remarkable way, through the use of Old Testament texts, he now comes to once again bring comfort to the afflicted by reminding them of all that Christ has accomplished on their behalf. See, he wants them to see Christ clearly again. In the fog of war, we lose sight of certain things and they had lost sight of who Christ is and what he had come to do. And so in that sense, he seeks to help them to see with new eyes, see with fresh vision once again the Christ that had saved them. So now as we approach the word this morning, Dear friends, dear church, let us humble ourselves before the word of God. Let us ask God, Lord, open my heart to your word this morning. Let us listen with faith and expectation that this is the word of God. And he wants to minister and meet us with it. This is Hebrews 2. I'm reading at verse 5 through the end I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, this morning we pray that as we look into your word that you would minister grace to us. Lord, for these next few minutes as we have time to attend ourselves to what your word is communicating in the same way that you wanted to minister to the original hearers of this word. So today you want to minister to us. And so, Lord, we, we just now we cast out all distractions and we say, Lord, open your word to us by your spirit. Help us to see what it is you want us to see in this passage that we might leave here being changed by your grace by being reminded of why Christ came in the first place. So we ask that together and pray for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, this is, a. at times it can appear like a bit of a challenging passage, especially as the writer of Hebrews quotes a number of things from the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 8, he quotes Isaiah 8, and it's not always immediately clear, oh, oh I see how that fits together. It It will take a little bit of time to walk through the text but, but it's glorious to do so. So we'll walk through the text together and then I'll, I'll take time to, to make two application points like, okay, what does this text hold out for us today? Why, why did God preserve this for us this morning and, and think about that together and, and glory in that together as, as God has given us the ability to to see, so let's let's just start making our way through the text. In the first section, the first section, by the way, I'm going to call verses five through eight. And if you would today, especially if you would just keep your Bible open, because I'm going to be pointing your eyes back to the text again and again, so that we can understand it properly. If you would keep the, your Bible open, that would be really helpful. In this first section, we see he begins with verse five, saying. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In other words, it wasn't angels that God put in charge of the world to come. No, it, it will be Jesus that will rule the world to come. Jesus alongside of his saints. So he's just starting to get us thinking about what's coming in the future. Verse six, he goes on into an explanation of what happened to the rule of the current world. Look what it says. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, uh, upon first reading, you may wonder, is, is the author talking about Christ? When when he's saying these things, you've made them for a little while lower than the angels? Or is he talking about someone else? Well, I think in order to interpret that, it's very helpful for us to go back uh, to this particular text from when it once it came. That would be Psalm 8. So I want to read a, a portion of Psalm 8. You can turn there. It'll also be on the screen just so that we have a context for where this writer uh, grabbed this from. It says this. You, you may find this familiar. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? This is a psalm of David. He's reflecting on on how good God is to even take notice of us. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. The context again here is is David wondering and in this worshipful adoration about why God, in, in view of the vast expanse of God's creative power and ability, how God could, could care for him. like he, he declares we've been made lower than the angels. He's given us dominion. If you can recall, it, it just sounds very similar to, to the dominion mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.26. I mean, he 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 declared that that Adam and Eve had dominion over the the earth, and 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 so it's this wonderful time of David reflecting praise and honor to God in in all that God has given to him. He's he's amazed at God's care uh, for man. Now, you know, you might wonder now why does God care for man um, in and amongst all His other creation? Well, God cares for man because. Man is the only one that has been created in God's image. No mountain as beautiful as they may be, no no sea, no stars, no animal, no beast of the field, nor fish of the sea. Nothing in all of creation other than humanity is created specifically in the image of God. Uh, Those things, those other created things, indeed do reflect the the glory and the creativity of God. But they're not specifically made in his image. God created man specifically in his image to reflect his attributes as he uh, gave dominion over all of his creation. That's what God intended for us to be. Uh, Those who would express God's dominion over all things. Remember the catechism, God is good and he does good. And that's how he set up Adam and Eve to take dominion over all created things. That was his intention, that we would we would act in a way as God's representative here on earth, taking dominion over his creation as God's representative. To carefully and delightfully express dominion over all of creation. Now, we know that through the entrance of sin into the world, that, that 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 expression of our dominion was diminished through sin, right? It was diminished. And yet there is still, for all believing people, there is this uh, intention of God that we would express similar dominion over the world. Uh, a God-glorying dominion, a servant-like dominion, one where we serve and what we do is for the glory of God. Now, yesterday, interestingly, I was talking to a man, not someone from our church, but a Christian man who was telling me that his Christian sister, who's, I don't know, 25 years old, pregnant, is, um, is actually experiencing some challenges at work because she's a Christian and not because of her faith, uh, exp- expressly. It's because she does such a good job that they keep wanting her to do more hours, work more time. And she's like, no, I'm, I'm pregnant. I need to be home. I'm, I can work some, but I, I, can't work as often as you might want. Uh, but she's such a good employee because of her Christian faith, because she believes that God has, has put us on earth to work and, and express the glory of God in our work, um, that, that they just want more. They don't know why she works so well, perhaps. But they just wanted to come. She's like, actually, I can't work as much as you want me to work, and I believe that's the way it should be, right? That that as believers, there is nobility in our work. That that when God calls us to to express dominion, God like dominion over the world, it means that we will we will work in such a manner as to reflect the glory of God. Think about that. Going to work tomorrow, you you can reflect. The glory of God in what you do, regardless of what you do, whether carpenter or counselor, whether plumber or preacher, teacher or technician, we're all called as God's people to do what we do for his glory, right? That's what we're called to do. So it brings nobility to whatever work we might happen to do. If we're flipping burgers, there's nobility in that because we are working and honoring the God who created us in his image to be his representatives. It's a glorious thing. It brings nobility to the work, regardless of what it is that God has called your hands to do. That's the dominion mandate. And actually, that's not exactly the whole point of the text. That's a little bit on the side. But I didn't want to miss that opportunity to say, you know, God... God is reflected in our work, and may we work and labor as a people unto His glory and honor in all the things that we do. Now, back to the text. The unfortunate reality about our dominion is that sin came into the world, and it, it got broken. We, we couldn't express uh, God's attributes in the way that we once could because of the presence of sin and so in essence we failed at doing what God put us in the world here to do that's why the author says look at verse 8 if you would he says at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him he's simply saying the broken dominion of man. So so God created Adam and Eve in his image to express Godlike like dominion. Sin entered the world. That that ability to do that was broken. Um, and at just the moment when we are discouraged by the fact that we have failed, verse 9 bursts on the seed. Look with me at verse 9. But, so there's a great turn here. At present, the end of verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Verse nine, he enters Jesus, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. And he uses the same phraseology here from, from Psalm eight, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the, so he's, he's doing a transition here. He was talking about man. In verses 5 through 8. Now he's talking about the glory of Jesus Christ. So man failed, verses 5 through 8. But but Jesus has now come. Another way to say it is the first Adam failed. The second Adam never will. Right? That's what he's saying. Crowned with glory and honor. This Jesus has come. He was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. We see that in Philippians 2. Jesus humbled himself, he took on flesh, and he came to be among us. He is the God-man. He is fully God, and yet he's fully man. And now Christ is crowned with glory and honor. There's a phrase in verse verse 9 that I want to draw your attention to. It says this at the end. So that by the grace of God, he might taste Death for everyone. Now, what does that phrase for everyone mean? Uh, The writer here is not teaching universalism. That's not what he's after here. He means that Christ's offer of salvation is for everyone. We, We know this because of verses like Romans 10 13, which declare to us for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The reality, however, is that not everyone will receive his offer of salvation. Some will neglect that offer. Some will reject that offer of salvation, this great salvation, leading to their destruction. That's what the author, again, warned us about in the opening verses of this very chapter. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So, so think with me. If all people were automatically saved by the death of Christ, that's what universalism teaches... Um, well, then there would be no need for anything like a warning because if we're all saved anyway, well, warnings have no place. Well, because that's not the case, there is a need for warning for some do uh, reject Christ. God has made a way for his people to be saved and Christ took on flesh so that that could happen. He took on flesh so that, so that we could experience salvation, so that he could do what we failed to do. So that he could do what we could never do. And this has been brought about, notice what he says, this has been brought about by the grace of God. Do you know, God's grace is what provided Christ in the first place. God's grace is good, right? Amen? He, It's good. He, he provided Christ to suffer in our place. It was made all possible for us by his grace. Verse 10, look with me there. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he now is talking about God the Father. For it is fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what he's saying is this. This glorious salvation's plan was God the Father's idea. It was His intention to bring many sons and daughters to glory. This is God's doing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity working together in the plan of redemption. Now, again, I want to point out something here that, that at times has tripped me up and Maybe as you're reading, it might trip you up. Again, verse 10 at the end, it says, "In bringing, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." Now, is is he suggesting that Christ was somehow not perfect prior? to his suffering. No, prior to his death, there was no flaw in Christ whatsoever. He was already perfect in every way. There was no flaw in Christ whatsoever. What I believe he does mean, however, is that through his suffering, the glory of Christ was Made complete. So we can think about that word there, made perfect, as made complete. Through his suffering, his glory was made complete. We think of images of his glory in Revelation chapter 5, for example. The lamb who was slain as receiving now all of the worship of all God's created beings. All all worship coming to this one who has been made, his his worship has been made complete through the pathway of his Suffering. This was the God Father's good plan to bring people, many sons to glory. And Jesus through his suffering now stands as the conquering king. He stands as the one in authority over all things having been made perfect through this suffering that he did on our behalf. He was made complete. He stands ready now to receive your praise. And my praise, he is worthy of all glory. Let's continue on, and in a moment we'll get to what does this mean for our lives. Verse 11, For he who sanctifies, look at it if you will, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Christ came not just to share in our humanity, but He came to actually transform it. He came to bring people to God. And in bringing God to man, man to God, excuse me, Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. So in verse 12, as you see there, this is a quote from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And, and, and this is, this is the paraphrase that I would give this verse when he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. It's like there's a sense that, that Jesus has joined us in this mighty congregation, lifting his voice in praise to God, and he's calling us brothers. Look what I will tell of your name, God, Father. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So Jesus has declared that all who believe are his brothers and sisters. And in this mighty chorus, there is this praise that is lifted up to God the Father. Verse 13 says, and again, I will put my trust in him. Now he's quoting Isaiah 8 here, uh, saying that just as Christ has taken on flesh, he is just like us in that sense of needing the support and help of God to do the will of the Father. I will put my trust in Him. And again, it says at the end of verse 13, behold, I and the children God has given me. It's like Christ is relishing and enjoying each of the children that God the Father has given to Him in salvation. I mean, it's, it's this beautiful picture, just this one little phrase there the end of verse 13, again, look at it. He said, Behold, I and the children God has given me. So, so Jesus is saying, um, like the good shepherd who is gathering his sheep to himself. Every one of his sheep has a name. He's gathering them to himself. I and the children that you have given me. He's thanking God for the salvation that has been brought to you and me. Through his own sacrifice. It's it's beautiful. Behold, I and the children God has given me. You know, you you matter to the Lord. Your salvation matters to Christ. He he just isn't collecting a bunch of people for his praise. He cares about each one of us. We are the children of God. and, And that's what he's communicating here as he's declaring these things. So... Um, before we review the last section, let me just take a moment to, to encapsulate again where we've been so far. Number one, God created man in his own image to reflect him in showing forth his character and dominion over all things. Yet, sin entered the world and thereby we failed to demonstrate that dominion over all things in a way that would honor Christ. And even more importantly, our relationship with Christ failed because of that sin. It was because of what we did. We rebelled against God and against his righteous rule. And though, again, like the catechism said, everything flourishes under God's righteous rule. We broke that flourishing by our own choosing of sin. We willfully broke that. And yet God is a redeeming God. So you think, wow, that's really bad news. It is bad news. But that's what makes the good news so good because God doesn't leave us there in that broken state. In fact, it was God the Father's plan to send Christ on His behalf to redeem people from their brokenness, to bring them by faith in Christ to God Himself. God sent His Son, Jesus, to pitch His tent among us. He was fully God and fully man and now we'll... Let me just read this last section of glorious and precious verses. Since, therefore, all these things are true, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were "...subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 14 reminds us that Jesus willfully shared in our humanity. And, and let me just pause to say, I, I understand we're kind of doing a lot of work in the deep end of the pool here, here theologically this morning. I hope that you find it refreshing because it's, it's just God's truth. And trust me, it will, we'll, we'll see how it matters to us. But these are dear and precious truths that mean so much to us. Christ came and, and took on human flesh So that he could be our substitute. So that he would break the power of the devil. So that we would no longer have to fear death. So many of us, right? At times we can, we can fear death, right? We're we're aware of our own mortality. We can fear what will happen at death. We can, we can just live in a general fear of death. In fact, our American culture, uh, we don't, we don't want to think about the end of our days at all. We'll do everything to keep ourselves alive as long as we possibly can. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I'm simply saying we, we don't necessarily like to think about death and what's coming. And so we, we try to busy ourselves with many things, but we all can live under a fear of death Christ has come to conquer that fear to break that fear the fear that of death that we have it's like chains that are on us we've been subjected to to that fear our whole lives long and Christ came to break those chains they're no longer ours we don't have to fear death because Christ is victor over death and I was so ministered to this morning by that last song that we sung. He will hold me fast. What is that song saying? That song is saying many things, but related to death, I just want to posit this for you to consider that, that if Christ is going to hold us fast in the midst of this life, do you think he's going to let go in the moment of our death? Do you think he's going to loosen his grip when we need him the most? Is that who he is? Or is he faithful to see us to the other side? This is what he's saying. This is why Christ took on flesh. He pitched his tent among us. He he took on the sufferings that we experienced. Because he wanted to break the bonds of death and lead us by faith to the other side, the place of glory and joy as we'll be in his presence forever. It's beautiful. And he's trying, the author is trying to, to help these people wake up and say, no, don't abandon Christ. Don't slide away from him. No, pay close attention to what you've heard because Christ is the one that will get you there. He has beat death at its own game. He's destroyed the power of the devil. He has broken the bonds that you once had. He is the one who will lead you, put all your hope and all of your trust in Christ. And I want to ask you, do you know that hope this morning? Do you know it? Like, deep in your soul. Like, I know that when my last breath comes, Christ will carry me To the other side to glory. Do you know it this morning? Oh, I pray that everyone in this room would know that without a shadow of a doubt. When your last day comes, that you know that because of faith in Jesus Christ, He will carry you to the other side. That He will get you there. Not because of what you've done, but because of what He has done. And this is the glory of this passage. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. Look look with me at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, uh, throughout the course of... Our time in Hebrews, because he's such an Old Testament-oriented author, he's going to constantly be referring to Jesus, our high priest. He compares him as a high priest. He's superior to to all the other priests, including Melchizedek. He's superior in all these ways. And, And we're going to see that all throughout Hebrews. But he does something absolutely beautiful here. I'll try to hold myself together. Think with me back to the Old Testament times. In the Old Testament, what did the high priest do? But he received an animal, an animal without fault or spot. He received an animal, and on behalf of the sins of the people, he sacrificed that animal, and the animal's blood um, signaled faith in a coming Savior. So something had to die in order to pay for sin. And in the Old Testament, the high priest brought this animal and sacrificed that animal on behalf of the person. When Christ, our high priest, came... like, I'm going to be the sacrifice. I'm going to be the sacrifice. Who loves like that? Tell me. Who loves like that? That's what he's saying. He's saying he had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he could Become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus, as our high priest, offers himself. He offers his blood as the mediating, mediating agent, the propitiation before God, so that by faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are propitiated by our great high priest. It's absolutely beautiful. God himself became the sacrificial lamb. He spilled his own blood that we might be forgiven of our sins. I can't believe it. I do believe it, but it it astounds me when I think about it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, let me save verse 19 uh, for an application. Two points of application. What, what does this mean for our lives today? Why does this matter these are going to be so simple that you 're like uh, didn't take much to think of those but but sometimes the application of the word is simple, and i don 't want to complicate it. I believe this is part of the purpose for this text today. application point number one: daily marvel at god 's sacrificial love for you I believe that's that 's what we should do in response to this just just be in awe of God that that he would willfully sacrifice himself dear dear church let, let's be amazed at his grace for us god god loves you enough to send christ to be sacrificed for you you know we used to sing a song years ago i stand i stand in awe of you remember that song many of you do like how long has it been since we just stood and awe of the Lord and wonder at, at his sacrifice. Lord, you were the sacrifice. I, I, I want to take time as, as a corporate body in just a moment to just just worship the Lord quietly and, and to help us to do that. I, I'm going to return to, to our text, actually, um, to, to Psalm 8. This will be projected on the screen. David says again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? What, what I'm inviting you to this morning, dear church, is to enter into the mystery and the joy of of being in awe of the Lord once again, in in view of all that he has made, in view of the, the galaxies of creation, and in view of all the things that God has done, why would he care about you? Why would he care about me? that's That's what David is doing here. Like, Lord, I, I just, I'm amazed. What is man that you're mindful of him? He's just astounded that the almighty creator, the, the God of everything, would take time to care about him and his reality. And in the same way, so it is for us. So God cares for us in our reality here today. He left the glories Which are unspeakable. We don't even, can't even describe. He left the glories of heaven to come and enter into our world, enter into the human experience to expose himself willfully to the brokenness of our world so that he could be our substitute. He emptied himself of that glory and he came and took upon himself humanity. He came to take your place of guilt and my place of guilt. I should have been on that altar. Christ was on the altar. Dear friends, uh, I think this is the the point. Let us marvel at the mercy of God. Let us us stand in awe of Him. Let it settle upon us that God has done what what is unthinkable. He became the substitute for us. It reminds me of, of Paul's words in Romans Uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, where he said, for our sake, for our sake, put in your own name, for your sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians call this the great exchange. Christ became sin so that we could become righteous I just want to pause now for one minute one minute of quiet worship just you in your seat closing your eyes or however you want to do it just now offering thanks to God for his sacrifice Application point number two. Daily turn to Christ because He identifies with your weakness and is eager to help you. This is this is the last verse of our text. Uh, For because He Himself suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. His suffering was real. His temptations were were real. Now, some may say, no, his temptations weren't really real because he was God and God cannot be tempted with evil. And while it is true that God cannot be tempted with evil, he was also fully man. He's fully God, fully man, which means that his temptations, in fact, were real. And because they are real, he can minister to us in some very meaningful ways. Let me let me illustrate. Do you ever find yourself in a state of anguish? A state of, perhaps, deep sorrow? Perhaps when you feel like nobody knows the depth of this anguish that I feel, right? Nobody. Even if I told them they wouldn't know the depth of anguish that I feel right now. Christ understands that anguish because he was tempted and suffered in every way like us. He knows that and he's able to help us. Do you ever find yourself being uh, mistreated or worse, betrayed? Christ knows what it's like to be mistreated and betrayed. One more. Do you ever, do you ever find yourself um, in the throes of temptation and you just didn't expect to find yourself there? Christ knows the reality of temptation. In fact, he knows it more than all of us because he had the strength to resist like it it doesn't take a, a strong person to be tempted for a while and then fall it takes a strong savior to be tempted and all the way resist therefore he can minister grace to those who are tempted that that's why I think he ends with this he just he says here's what Christ has done he has has been your sacrifice he has made a way for you to get to heaven to have your sins forgiven your conscience cleansed he's done that but he's not only done that as you walk the journey to heaven Christ is going to hold you fast as you walk the journey to heaven he is going to be with you every step of the way as you walk your journey to heaven when you are tempted when you are struggling Christ is here to minister his grace to you. Praise the Lord. We are not alone. We are not alone. There's not one moment in our lives when we will experience something, some anguish, some grief, some joy, some sorrow, whatever it is, we will never be alone. That's what he's communicating here. On the pathway to glory, Christ will be with us. Amen? He is with us. And he carries us along. I want to call the band to come. We're going to sing a, a rousing song in a moment to celebrate together this great and abiding grace that God has given to us. But, but let me just take us back as we wrap it up here. Let me just take us back to these first years. Again, they were tempted to abandon Christ. They were tempted to go away. And and the writer with a, a pastor's heart says, no, 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 no. Remember this Christ. He is glorious and exalted over all. And then he, he, he warns them, no, don't. Don't let go. How could we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And then at the end of chapter 2 here, what we've just read this morning, he says, look, look, we failed in our ability to carry out what God had initially called us to do. We failed. But God is a redeeming God. He redeems people who fail. And he sent his son, Jesus, to come into this world to experience the frailties that we experience in this life So that he could be our substitute. Where we should be deserving of that punishment for our sins, Christ, like he stood in front of us. And he absorbed the wrath of God. So that we, standing behind Christ, could have his righteousness. The great exchange. Therefore, what do we do? We marvel. At the kindness of God to do this for us. And we draw near to him. We come to him. We draw near to his throne of grace where what we'll find is mercy and help in our time of need. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He is good to us. You're not going to face anything this week, dear church, whereby as you, as you put your faith in Christ, He will not hold you fast. He will always be faithful. What hope, what joy, what strength we gain from this. The fear of death, that's gone. Because Christ has vanquished even that foe. The devil is destroyed forever. He holds no power or sway over us anymore because of the work of Christ. And now all we have, what do we have? We have amazing grace. How sweet it is to us that God would save a wretch like me. So dear friends, we take courage. We have hope. We rejoice this morning because God has been so good to us. And if, just to say it one last time again this morning, if you, if you aren't sure of your sins being forgiven by Christ, I say to you, come to Him right now today and throw yourself on His mercy because He will receive everyone who comes to Him. He will pardon abundantly. He came to make propitiation for sins. He came to be the sacrifice so that you could be forgiven. Come to Him this morning. Fly to Christ. He is our mighty and our gracious redeemer. Lord, thank you this morning that you have been good to us in sending Christ your son to take our place to take the punishment that my sins deserve. Lord, you substituted him so that I could go free. And Lord, we we celebrate that grace. It's amazing. It's all brought about by your grace. And now, as your church, may we relish this and enjoy this and celebrate it together because you have been good and all God's people said amen